so the band's on today, and uh, which is good, because I may not be. <laughs> it, has been, it has been a long, a long week this week, and those of you that are new here, those of you that are listening online, like, or watching online, you may not even know uh, what everybody's talking about, um, but uh, this week we lost Casey for a time. Uh, if you don't follow us on Facebook, you may not even know this until right now, and I'm sorry. Um, Casey passed away on Tuesday uh, at 5.30-ish uh, in the afternoon, uh, surrounded by uh, friends, close friends, and, uh, and his pastor and his uh, wife, Dorian, who's here somehow uh, today. I don't even know where she went, but I know she's here. And, hey, you're in the back. I get it today. Usually you're up front, but that's all right. And uh, the boys are here, and uh, Casey was and continues to be a deep central part of this community, uh, and it just ripped us to shreds, honestly, uh, as a community. And I just, I felt this morning like I'm just out of everything, like I'm out of tears, I'm out of energy. I just, uh, uh, it's one of those moments in life where you just kind of want to check out. You ever been there? I mean, you don't want to invest anymore in anything or anyone. You just kind of want to detach. And um, usually that's not a very healthy sign of well-being. It's usually not uh, a good sign. And it's definitely not the way Casey uh, would want us to be. So I've been thinking a lot about that. Casey uh, was more than a church member to me personally. I was a very close friend. We were, we were soulmates in the least romantic way I can say that word. Uh, when I met him, I just I knew we were going to be uh, best friends, and uh, and when you're a pastor, there's not a lot of people you can really talk to, and so as I said yesterday at the funeral, uh, I told Casey stuff about myself that I'm not even sure my wife knows, <laughs> and and then as I as I said that uh, at the at the bedside as he was passing away, I said those very words, and his friends were like, you know, uh, Casey recorded every conversation he ever had, <laughs> which I think is like illegal or something. It sounds like CIA stuff, but, uh, but uh, he just did it so he would remember, you know, um, and so uh, I, I love him, and this whole church loves him. He's just impossible not to love, and uh, leaves a big gap in this community, um, and he fought hard against leukemia, beat leukemia, and then succumbed to the infections in his lungs after the stem cell transplant. So it has been a tough week um, here at the story. It's our third funeral in three years, all for young men, like relatively otherwise healthy young men. And each time it's hurt, this one uh, just hurt in a different way just because of how deeply involved Casey and his family are um, here. And yesterday at the funeral, this place was just packed out, and everybody told stories, and everybody cried. And, and Dorian got up and talked and made all of us cry even more. And, and it, was, it was awful, and it was awesome all at once. You know what I'm saying? You ever been there? Like it's the worst and the best all in the same moment. And... Uh, I promise I didn't plan it this way. It just happened this way. Weeks ago, we planned for today to be about themes of exhaustion and burnout and detachment, fatigue. And here we are. 
Is there anything more exhausting than grief? It just wears you out. I stayed up all night celebrating the Astros, and I was writing a sermon the next morning at 8 o'clock. You know what I mean? Like, celebration doesn't wear you out the same way that grief does. I could lay down on this stage right now and just go to sleep. Even with y'all here, I could just do it right now because I'm exhausted. And that's what grief does. And grief, a season of grief is one of those things that will sneak up on you. And if you're not careful, it will lead you to a place of burnout. You just end up being burnt out on life. Like when you lose someone or, or you, life doesn't go your way and you just grieve so deeply, it wears you out to the point of this hopelessness that can set in, this darkness that can lead you down some pretty dark paths um, toward burnout and, and, and things like that. And, and so today uh, we're talking about burnout, which is a timely, a timely conversation um, because uh, in the past, especially something like losing a friend like Casey would, would have sent me into a spiral of drinking too much, eating too much, and, and, you know, I'm not even talking about eating organic, healthy stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> eating the worst stuff, drinking the worst stuff, and just basically self-destruction, self-isolation. But uh, something happened in me five years ago uh, last month that you all know about where just shifted my priorities around. I'm not going to tell you that I don't struggle with burnout anymore. I still feel the temptation, but I know it when I feel it, and I can, I can kind of guard my heart against it. Because I know now the cause of that cycle of burnout that I used to live in. And this message may not apply to all of you, but it's going to apply to some of you very deeply. Because if you deal with the cyclical pattern of burnout, like I used to, where you go 100 miles an hour until you hit the wall, then you're going zero. You crashed and burned. And it's like twice a year you do the same thing. And your family can kind of plan their lives around it because they know it's coming. Like that's the pattern I was in. And some of you are as well. Here's how the Library of Medicine defines burnout. As a state of mental or physical collapse caused by overwork or too much stress. Mental or physical collapse caused by overwork or too much stress. Now, it's only recently that they've started diagnosing this as a syndrome, burnout syndrome. In the 80s, really, is when they started uh, recognizing these symptoms as something uh, unique in and of themselves. But they thought that it was all about work. So they used to think that burnout was all work-related. So it was originally called occupational burnout because they thought it was about your job. And if you have a job that just sucks or you hate your job or you love your job, you're just not good enough at it, you think, and, and you just can't get ahead and, and you give your job all you've got, then you get burned out. And that's how burnout started. But what they've realized lately is that anyone can be burned out. You don't need a job to be burned out. So uh, students can be burned out. Amen? <laughs> students. Uh, parents, stay-at-home parents can be burned out. Retirees can be burned out. Anybody. You, you can be burned out about looking for a job. You don't need a job to be burned out. You just need an idol. And it just so happens that for many of us, our favorite idol is our job. And by idol, I just mean something that takes the place where only God should be in our lives. Something that becomes the ultimate thing. So that if your job becomes the ultimate thing and you lose it or you're not good enough at it, like it's easy to burn out there. Or if your family becomes your ultimate thing and you're just not performing well enough as a parent or things go wrong, they misbehave, they get, you know, sent to uh, detention or expelled or, or, or the grades aren't coming in the way that you hoped that they would or they're just not living up to your expectations as a parent, then, uh, then, then you can go into that spiral. Or, you know, anything that you set up with that expectation is, is in, in a sense, it's idolatry and it can set you up for 
for this kind of burnout. Here's what experts are learning about burnout. It manifests itself in us the exact same way that depression does. In fact, clinicians often can't tell the difference between clinical depression, which is a disease, and burnout, which is circumstantial. It's based on external factors. You see, there is a difference, but they often can't tell the difference because 90% of people who suffer from patterns of burnout experience all the same symptoms uh, of depression as people with clinical depression do. So that kind of constant state of exhaustion, this feeling of cynical hopelessness, this feeling of isolation, nobody gets me, this feeling of dehumanization of others, destruction of self, all of these kinds of uh, pattern behaviors are a result of burnout, including irritability, including kind of mental gridlock where it just feels like your mind is just moving in cement some days and you can't make the simplest decisions. You're overwhelmed. So sometimes uh, they, they don't know the difference between the two. 25% of Americans at any given time suffer with burnout. So 25% of this room, for example, there's a lot of people, are suffering with burnout. But here's the kicker. I think it's more than that because there's certain demographics within our society that tend to struggle with burnout more. This, what I'm about to tell you, is why we're spending a Sunday morning talking only about burnout. If you're wondering why, it's because certain kinds of people tend to struggle more with burnout than the general population. Let me run you through this list. Millennials, are the most stressed out, overwhelmed generation with the most pressure put on them than any other generation they've ever studied. And a lot of that is because the rest of us just spend all of our time judging millennials <laughs> for being spoiled or whatever. You have no idea what it's like to be a kid today if you think they're just spoiled and just, you know, entitled. They have more pressure on them than most of us had even later in uh, adulthood. So millennials incredibly stressed out. Working moms take more antidepressants than every other demographic group except for one. Anybody want to guess who that is? Somebody said it. Stay-at-home moms. <laughs> stay-at-home moms. I'm guessing that was a stay-at-home mom. <laughs> I don't know who it was. No judgment. But 40% of stay-at-home moms are on some kind of anti-anxiety or anti-depression medication. Half of all physicians, half of all lawyers and almost half of all teachers experience high levels of burnout in a patterned, systematic way. People who work over 60 hours a week do as well, even if they like their job. So all that to say, if I had to guess, I would guess that millennials, moms, doctors, lawyers, teachers, and overachievers make up anywhere from 90 to 100% of the story used in community. <laughs> this is who we are. That list, that's us. We got a lot of lawyers, a lot of doctors, a lot of teachers, moms, millennials, like overachievers. That's us. So we must talk about burnout. How do we get into that place where it all feels like it's hitting the fan? How do we get out of that place? All right. So I'm not a therapist. I'm not really a specialist or a psychiatrist. I'm coming at this issue from a biblical angle because I believe burnout is a biblical problem. I think it existed in biblical times. When the people are living in chaos, when they just make too many wrong choices when they try to say yes to too many different things as though there's more than just a few things that are vitally important so they fill their lives with so much stuff and they forget about the one or two things that really matter most that's all over the bible when they go through their worst times i mean i can't distinguish between the symptoms they experience and the symptoms i do when i'm burned out so burnout is all over um scripture uh, and so uh, and and so it shouldn't 
be in our minds a new issue. So whenever people confuse, whenever people confuse production with purpose, right? When, when we sell out just to live for production instead of thinking about our higher purpose, whenever our discipline in life gives way to disarray and disorder, we open ourselves up to, uh, to burnout. So here's what happens. We still want all the best stuff in life. We want to experience all the greatest things in life. But we don't, most of us, don't have the discipline it takes to attain those best things. Okay? So I'm speaking mostly spiritually, but it also works in the physical world. Like, I, I really want a six-pack. I've never had one. I would love to have a six-pack. But I also want a six-pack. It's a conundrum. Because you can't have it both, I don't think. And I want to lower my blood pressure without lowering my bacon intake. You know what I mean? Like, I, I want to I be the guy that's read all the classics without spending all that time just reading. Ugh, it's so boring, you know. Like, that's how we're wired. And so we see all the stuff we don't have, and we just scurry around busying ourselves trying to fill our lives so that we can feel like we've got those things, but we never attain them. The same thing works that way with our souls. Right, so our souls work in the, same, in the same kind of way where we all kind of want the benefits of a close relationship to God. We know people who have a close connection to God. We just don't know how to get there ourselves. We want the benefits without the discipline and hard work, frankly, that it takes to get to that place with God. I'm not saying you have to do the hard work to be loved by God or accepted by God. I'm just saying if you want to be one of those people who has an obvious impact Im, impermeable kind of relationship with God. Like, it's just this kind of connection that they have that cannot be explained with God. And you want those benefits yourself, the self-assurance and the confidence and the, the peace of mind. And even attractiveness has been connected in studies to faith in God. Like, it makes you more attractive as a person to the opposite sex. If you want all of those things, it's not just a matter of wanting those things. It's about getting on your knees every morning, sacrificing the time, saying no to other things so that you can pursue the relationship that you want or you say you want with God. We all want the best things, but we lack discipline. And so um, the best things are, are reserved for those who can be disciplined and keep things simple. Friends, I'm just going to be honest with you and tell you I think we suck at keeping things simple. I think we overcomplicate life. We clutter our lives, and most of our chaos is self-imposed. We have forgotten the value of saying no to things. We try to say yes to everything in, a, in an effort to have the stuff, the best stuff that we think we want. And that, I think, usually leads to burnout, which, uh, which leads us to all kinds of suffering. So that's how the Christian worldview breaks this down. Burnout comes from living with a lack of overall purpose and overall living with a lack of overall purpose comes from living with a lack of discipline and here's the bible's message about this and this is tough but if you can't learn to discipline yourself god will try to do it for you and the, all the old testament god stuff you hear about how mean god is in the old testament and how rigid and cruel and hateful god seems in the old testament it's all wrong. I mean, I, I understand how people get there. We're going to read some of it in a second, but it's all wrong. And what it really is is a God who's just trying to discipline his kids again, trying to get his kids back in line before it's too late, before they're too far gone. 
Okay, so that's what we get a lot from, it, from the Old Testament um, prophets, especially. That's why we're talking about Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel. I wanted you to know a little bit about Ezekiel. Pastor Gio probably went over some of this last week when I was away from you. Um, but Ezekiel was a Hebrew priest. He was born around 622 B.C. And he lived during one of the most tumultuous, difficult, stressful times in the life of these Israelites. The, the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. The Babylonian conquest of both Israelite kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern, fell to Babylon. And Ezekiel lived during that time, and he was one of the, the leaders that was taken into exile. During the first wave of the siege of, of Jerusalem, Babylon um, see, uh, seized a bunch of Jerusalem's leadership and put them on carts and carted them away into Babylon. Present-day Iraq, where they were kept in captivity and in exile for many years. So Ezekiel was one of them, and he became a prophet in exile. So Ezekiel is speaking about Jerusalem, but he's speaking from Babylon about what's happened um, back home. So he's known for all kinds of colorful language. If you ever want to laugh or just be really confused, read through Ezekiel and, uh, and you'll find it there. Here's a, an important thing to know about um, Old Testament prophets. They are not about predicting the future. Old Testament prophets are not uh, sitting in front of a phone with a crystal ball, like taking calls, like, when am I going to fall in love and meet the one? Like, that's not what they did. They didn't, I promise you, they, they were really almost entirely about um, telling the truth about the present. So they told the truth to powerful people. They told the truth to religious people. They told the truth to God's people about how they're missing the point. So Ezekiel's message to the people is a hard one. He says, you brought this on yourselves. This time of conquest and siege and suffering and starvation, he says, we brought this on ourselves, he says, because we were supposed to be called out. We were supposed to be different from everyone else. We were supposed to live holy lives. We were supposed to represent the one true God. And we had this privilege of a relationship and a connection with this God who saw us as slaves in Egypt and brought us out of our slavery and captivity and provided for us in the wilderness, gave us a land of our own, helped us build a kingdom of our own. Out of nothing, out of slavery, he brought all of this. And what have we done? We've become just like everyone else. We worship any God we want at any time, just like anyone else. We spend our money however we want, just like everyone else. We neglect the poor, just like everyone else. We have sex, just like everyone else, whenever, however, with whomever we want. We are no different, even though God set us up with such privilege and such a powerful connection to him. He says, we brought this on ourselves because we had it all. But we also had a deficit of discipline. And that was the root of their season of burnout. He describes it further with some uh, imagery in this vision he has in Ezekiel 15. You can turn with me in your Bible. I'm going to read the whole chapter, which everyone loves to hear uh, from, a, from a preacher. But it's not a long chapter. It's just, a, it's just one, or two, one paragraph, I think. Yeah, two small paragraphs. And, uh, and it's in your study guides as well. It'll be on the screen. This is what Ezekiel says. He says, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, how is the wood of a vine different from that of a branch of any of the trees in the forest? Is wood ever taken from it to make anything useful? So he's saying, is the wood of a vine useful to make anything? If you know anything about vines, there's really not, like, much wood there at all, like, to, to do anything with. And so the answer is no. Do they make pegs from it to hang things on? No. After it's thrown on the fire as fuel and the fire burns both ends and chars the middle, is it then useful for anything? No. 
It was not useful for anything when it was whole. How much less can it be made into something useful when the fire has burned it and it is charred? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. As I have given the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest as fuel for the fire, so will I treat the people living in Jerusalem. I will set my face against them. Although they have come out of the fire, the fire will yet consume them. And when I set my face against them, you will know that I am the Lord. I will make the land desolate because they have been unfaithful, declares the sovereign Lord. This is where God in the Old Testament gets his reputation. <laughs> you made your bed, I'm going to let you sleep in it. You created this problem, I'm going to let you deal with the consequences. You got arrested, I'm going to let you stay in jail all night. Anybody ever been there? I did the latter once, like not for my kids, they're too young, but my dad did it to me, and, uh, and it made an impression. At the time, it felt like he was just being mean. You can feel that way with God sometimes. Like, I made this mess, I understand, but I feel sorry for it now. God, can't you just clean it up for me? And God sometimes is like, no, you just gotta, just gotta deal with that for a minute. And the question is, why? Why would God let people that he loves suffer ever? Why would he let us go through difficult times? Why would he let us lose in life if he loves us? It's because this God, Old Testament God, who everyone likes to criticize, is really a good father. And fathers in the room, mothers too, if all you ever want is to be your kid's best friend, if all you ever want is to be liked by your kids and their friends, if all you ever wanted was to be the house where all the coolest parties happen, you're missing it. You're missing your role. You're, you're, you're forsaking your duty as a father or as a mother to bring discipline to your children's lives. And we all know kids that are never disciplined in life, and, and it never turns out well because they just wander and meander, and they think they're entitled to just about anything. But God doesn't want that for his children. God's constantly offering discipline to those of his kids who cannot or choose not to discipline ourselves. But oftentimes we don't take it as discipline, we take it as, you know, as mean God. Or there's no God, and we're just here alone, and, and that's why people suffer. I'm not saying that every bad thing that happens to you is discipline from God. I'm just saying that some of the bad things that happen to us, God can use to bring discipline into our lives. And here's the trick that you don't see unless you know to look for it. In the book of Ezekiel, God says the phrase, then they will know I'm the Lord 60 times. It's in this passage I just read today in Ezekiel 15, toward the end. God says all the stuff we don't like and we wince at. And then he says, then they'll know I'm the Lord 60 times. Then they'll know I'm the Lord. They'll go through all of this and I'll let them, but then they'll know I'm the Lord. They'll go through that and then, and then maybe they'll know I'm the Lord. 60 times he seems obsessed with this. And I know that phrase, the Lord to us, is a religious phrase. It wasn't in Ezekiel's day. The Lord wasn't synonymous with God in Ezekiel's day. The Lord could be a person. The Lord was just the one who's over you, the one who's responsible for you, the one you belong to, your protector, your provider. That's who your Lord was. It could have a capital L or a lowercase l. It doesn't matter. God here is saying, Maybe if they go through this, maybe once they're through this season, maybe they'll understand again that I'm the Lord. Maybe they'll see again that I've got them, that I've got this, that I'm with them. If they'll let me be, I will never let them go. Maybe we can be good again. Maybe we can be in relationship again once they go through this storm. 
Maybe they'll see again that I'm their protector and their provider looking after them. I'm the one they belong to. Sixty times he says this like a desperate father whose kids are going through something. Ezekiel says, we were supposed to be the vine. We were supposed to be the vine. This is in the Old Testament is a very common image, this idea of a vine. In the Old Testament, the vine was the people of God. And the people of God had one purpose, and that was to be rooted in God and to make God known, to be fruitful, right? That was their only purpose in life. And Ezekiel's saying we had one role as a vine, the vine of God, and we blew it. God is refusing to let us go. He wants to redeem us. In John 15, we kind of get a fuller picture of this. And Jesus, knowing well the book of Ezekiel, he probably knew it by memory, the book of Ezekiel, he reiterates this message of the vine. But he changes the metaphor on us. Check out what Jesus does in John 15. John 15, verse 1 and 5, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, then I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, though, you can do nothing. So Jesus and all of his listeners knew that in the Old Testament, the vine was always us. It was always the people that God called to believe in him and live for him. But Jesus here, knowing that, Jesus here changes the metaphor, and he's like, you guys were supposed to be the vine. You kind of stink at being the vine. I'll be the vine now. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine. All you've got to do is to be branches. All you've got to do is to bear fruit from the vine and abide in me, and I will show you how to bear fruit. I will sustain you. I will give your life the significance that you were created to have. And, and he says, all you've got to, you've got to do is abide in me me. So he's saying the same thing Ezekiel was. Without that relationship, without that central connection to God, a disciplined life in God, you will burn out. But God didn't create you to burn out. God didn't create you for the fires of burnout, for the chaos or the mayhem of life. He created you to thrive and to simply bear fruit in his world. God created you Whoever you are today, he created you to bear his fruit in this world. And I know some of you are like, well, that's real nice. That's a nice image, but I have no idea what it means to bear fruit for God, okay? Like, I don't know what it means. Could you be more specific? Yes, I could be more specific, but I couldn't be more specific than the Bible is because the Bible actually clears this up for us. Before, before the word of God is done in, in just a couple of decades after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Galatians 5, 19, Paul spells it out for us very clearly. First of all, he spells out for us the way most of us are living, if we're honest. The way most of us are living today, he says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. Now, you can take out the part about witchcraft and orgies, um, but look at the rest of it. <laughs> nobody, nobody tweet that today, take out the part about the witchcraft and the orgies. But the, what else do you see there? When I look at the list of the acts of the flesh, what I see here, I, I can't distinguish that list, minus witchcraft and orgies, I can't distinguish the list from the list of Symptoms of burnout. The pattern many in this room live with. 
I know some of you may be in a good place today and you're like, well, that's not me. That's because you're in your 100 mile an hour season. That wall's coming again and you know it. You know how, how things change when you hit that wall and things get crazy. But then Paul continues and he casts a vision for who we can become. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience. Goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you've ever, in a season of darkness and doubt, wondered why you're here, why God made you, and what your purpose is, look at the screen right now and take a mental snapshot of the fruit of the Spirit of God. Because God made you to cultivate in you by His grace and through His Spirit, to cultivate in you a soul that bears these fruits. And when you put everything else aside, when you choose to say no to bowing down to the pressure at work, the pressures of performance at home, the pressures of performance at school, when you choose to get in line your priorities, beginning with God and family and church and serving the world, the few things in your life that really do matter, he will bring out of you these fruits. He will produce in you the fruits of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control to the extent that it will not be an act for you. It's not a mask you put on when you walk into the church or when you're supposed to act like a Christian. It just becomes a natural, organic thing. It's who you are. When you abide in Christ, when he is the vine, the source of your sustenance and your significance in life, he brings these fruits to the surface in you. And he makes himself known to those who are far from him through you. When we choose with discipline the simple things that matter most and say no to all the things that don't. This is why yesterday was a celebration and not a funeral. This is why we gathered, 450 of us, standing room only, in this room, and we laughed more than we cried. And even when we cried, we laughed through our tears. Because when you're celebrating the life of someone who knows how to simplify and knows how to prioritize God as the center of their life, who knows how to abide in Christ as the true vine, and you see the fruits of that in their lives. You see the way he changed his friends and his family and those around him for God. By bearing these fruits of God's spirit, you're able to laugh in the face of death. Even though you grieve and it wars, wears you out, you laugh in the face of it because you know death does not get the last word. You know that God's word is true. You know that in the end, you'll see Casey again. It got me thinking about the priorities I set for myself. 
And ever since that day, five years ago, when Jesus clearly, truly became the center of my life, when it mattered so much less what other people thought of me, it suddenly mattered so much less if people liked my sermons or my writings or anything. It mattered so much less if people accepted me. All that mattered was, am I in a right relationship with God? Is God the center of my life? Am I getting sustenance and significance from the Spirit of God? Or am I too scattered and am I, am I burning myself out? With Jesus at the center, everything simplifies. I'm not saying I don't have burnout anymore. I'm saying I know when it comes knocking, I know that it's time to put Jesus back in the center. What is it that you're living for today? What is it that you need to say no to starting now? Those old patterns of thinking and old behaviors and habits. We got 28 days from today till Easter Sunday. And all the specialists, all the experts in addiction and habit breaking, they all say that it takes 21 days of intentionally saying no to old habits for those habits to begin to die. There's no better time to put old habits to death in the season of Lent, to let those things die on the cross with Jesus so that this Easter you rise again, a new man, a new woman, a new person created in the Spirit of God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I pray that those in the room right now who are um, stirred up, by a conversation about burnout. I pray that we would recognize and uh, our, our propensity to overcomplicate, to say yes to too many things that don't really matter. Lord, I, I pray that you would give us the courage to block all those distractions out just for right now and understand the significance our lives hold. That just like back then, you still say today, I'm here, I'm yours, maybe you'll know I'm the Lord. And I've got this. If you'll let me, I've got you. Lord, you're moving in this place and we feel you. And I pray that some in this room will say yes. We'll surrender at last to your spirit. So that it may cultivate us, in us, souls that produce the fruit you created us for. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.